So Darren, did you see that thing I sent you? Tom Waits on the Late Late Show with Gay Byrne. <laughs> I did. What a legend. Oh my goodness. I mean, and it, Tom Waits in, in his... And Tom Waits too, yeah, that's what I mean. In his more... Tom Waits <laughs> in his more um, not quite uh, completely out there yet mod. You know, he I, had further to go was, even from there. But it was a lovely mix then that he... That kind of... The... What would you call it? It's kind of... It's almost like the wheels have come off but the wheels are firmly on and he just... By doing little, he does oh, so, so much. We should, it's probably to explain to anyone who's not familiar with either Tom Waits or Gay Byrne. I mean, the, so this was the, the Late Late Show in Ireland, which Gay Byrne hosted for 345 years, it seemed like. Um, and he was the, I don't know if he was the father of the nation or the, the grandfather of the nation or something. And he's just this very middle of the road character. Um, and 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 yet strangely an outsized personality at the same time and then uh, you have Tom Waits who who was if you're familiar with his catalogue he starts off with a, a couple of albums of fairly conventional ballads and then he he kind of veers off into much more interesting territory throughout the rest of his career and at this point he's just bef- I think it's just before he comes out with Swordfish Trombones which is a really fascinating mm. so album that's the interview from memory Dom wasn't that like 1981 because yeah. Gay is pretty young Gay struck me straight away is he like he's, I didn't realise how much of a handsome fella he was he was a dapper <laughs> well, fella you know, you know the, um, <laughs> the, the uh, you know I produced a documentary about about his radio show and Fintan mm-hmm. O'Toole, who hosted the documentary, said he remembered he remembered his mother sitting watching Gay Byrne going, isn't he gorgeous? Isn't he just gorgeous? <laughs> is that is that documentary on online? It is. For it is actually. Because yeah. like, uh, you have no idea I'm going to say this, but like, that is one of my favorite pieces of, of radio documentary. It is. It's so so well put together and I, I fell in love with it and my, then I played it for my mum when she was over here visiting one time and my mum would have been a like one of the women that, that that's mentioned in the documentary yeah. she's Irish woman she was she'd listen to Gabriel and during the week she'd have she'd watch late late during the night and her opinion after listening to that documentary was slightly changed too it's really so where where can we get that uh, it, it's on uh, it's on my soundcloud page it's not on the bbc archive it was made for bbc radio 4 um so uh we'll link to it in the show notes and anybody who wants to listen to it um, like you should it's so good so good the writing and the hosting by fintan o'toole is brilliant he articulates so perfectly what was going on in that radio show and Gabriel's radio show started off as a consumer show and then turned into this much more interesting vehicle for, um, well, a, a vehicle for Irish people to talk to each other about a lot of very complex issues that Ireland is still grappling with even now. So it's definitely worth a listen, if only, you know, not for anything that I did, but just for, for the Fintan O'Toole stuff. Yeah, okay, well, I... I did notice in that clip that you you showed me with himself and Tom Waits. Like he's very young, and the other thing is, uh, you can hear his his accent. He kind of goes a bit American a few times, which which is fine. But he, I think that was maybe just because he was so much younger. And did you notice how uh, how touchy feely and 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 just yes. familiar he was with Tom Waits' wife, <laughs> with the hand on the knee? And it was stuff. a different. It was a different, it was time. A different time. Although it didn't. It looked like Tom was not entirely. Um, comfortable 
Um, I no. always wondered with Tom when, like, I always uh, when you, with Tom, when it's like, did he ever just go? How have I ended up here? Is, but isn't that isn't that so? There's an interview he is famous for. So it's on Australian TV, and it's around like 1979, around then. And I, I think the guy's name is Don Lane. I have to know with Don Letts, but that's, I'm sure that's the like a producer, Don Lane. Anyhow, there's an interview with Tom Waits and him at, in 1979. If you look up Tom Waits' Australian interview, that he's Tom Waits' persona in that interview is actually what Heath Ledger latched onto for his character when he did the Joker in The Dark Knight. But that, whatever Tom brought to that interview that night is what Heath saw when that's who my Joker's going to be. That's something to look up to if, you, if, if people are going off on a, a looking stuff up on the <laughs> internet. Well, if, if you're looking up Tom Waits things as well, I mean, there's no shortage of interesting bits and pieces. There's a, a great chat with him where he's talking about figuring out what keys particular insects buzz in and um he's also as you'd know from listening to any of his any of his music from about 1980 onwards he's into found sound and things and he he, he wrote a he wrote an introduction to a, to a, a book and it details his fascination with doing things like finding a dumpster and um welding a hole welding a lid on it and then putting a hole in it and stringing it and and playing it you know with a with a kind of weird sort of uh, metal bow thing stuff like that it's just endlessly brilliant and you know what he's also known for what his most <laughs> famous quote dominic <laughs> his most famous <laughs> actually i get this this quote gets changed around to banjo but i know it's about the accordion and the quote goes like this it says a gentleman is someone that knows how to play the accordion but doesn't <laughs> how Which is that for a segue very neatly to today's <laughs> guest who thankfully does <laughs> play for us uh, today's guest being the legendary James Keane um, Irish accordion player born in Dublin who has spent many years living in New York and became a stalwart of the New York scene in the 1960s and we're just absolutely delighted to have him on today's show um, it's, a, it's a really fascinating deep conversation Tom so. did you know that um, James has a um, an accordion that is like his model uh, no I didn't actually his, his own name model made by mm -hmm. so not only does he is it, he is a gentleman he plays the accordion and accordions are made in his honour so he's like Les Paul mm -hmm. and so uh, uh, speaking of being honoured uh, James is going to be the recipient this year of the Irish Artist in America Achievement Award at the O'Flaherty Irish Music Retreat, which usually happens uh, near Dallas in Texas in the US, but is happening online this year from October the 18th to November the 8th. And it's an incredible opportunity to get access to players like James. Um, there's lessons, there's workshops, there's sessions, and there's online I wouldn't say lectures, but there's discussions about lots of different aspects of the culture surrounding Irish music and questions around Irish music and so on. And James, I think, is talking a bit about some of what you're about to hear tonight, which is about the the culture in Dublin, the musical culture in, in Dublin that he was embedded in from a youngster. So you can find out more details by going to oflahertyretreat.org and you'll find details as ever in the show notes. So, uh, shall we just crack on? Yeah, let's get into it. All right, here is um, recorded in Queens, New York, James Keen. Enjoy. Yeah. I just need a go sign so we can shut off 
Oh yeah, are we going to be going shortly? Yeah, well I'll open up with three jigs. The names of the jigs are uh, the Two and Sixpenny Girl, uh, the New House, and the Tar Road to Sligo. Uh, the Two and Sixpenny Girl uh, is, is, is a memory of times back when uh, young children were um, swapped to their neighbours to uh, help uh, in school day, during their school holidays. And they would earn uh, a couple of uh, shillings uh, for their for their summer, and uh, that's ba that's the basis of it. Uh, the new house is a jig composed by the late uh, Paddy O'Brien, the great accordion player, who uh, was in New York for for a few years also, and uh, he went back to Ireland and he wrote this particular jig when he was building his one his new house. Um, the tar road to Sligo is just uh, uh, a good standard um, uh, Sligo jig. So here, here they are.
James Keane, welcome to the Blarney Pilgrims podcast. I'm very glad, glad to be here and uh, my first my first time to Australia. <laughs> um, was there a particular reason you picked those tunes? Well, uh, I, I liked them first off and uh, like with, with most uh, of the tunes that uh, people play in Irish music, I, I, the way I look at it anyway, uh, it's a personal uh, viewpoint. Um, uh, the music, to me, uh, generally brings back the memory of a person that you learned it from. Aye. And uh, I have memories of playing that very first jig with uh, Joe Ryan, who is a great uh, fiddle player from uh, County Clare and uh, a member of our Castle Cayley band for all the years and um, so uh, I, I really believe in uh, bringing people back just to visit and that people that are gone that have passed uh-huh. uh, another aspect of the music is uh, you might be reminded of the beautiful place where you learned the tune and generally if it was from some place in Ireland, it's a very beautiful place, and um, it keeps you uh, and it reminds you of how lucky you were to uh, grow up in those areas. And then uh, another, the third uh, aspect of of learning music or recording a tune or or picking up a tune, or uh, maybe the uh, the circumstances that you learned to tune under and um, whether it was a happy or sad affair and um, so it, it, this all comes uh, true in in the playing of the tune then um, rather than just say I learned that tune straight off uh, a CD or I learned it off a piece of tape um, so with that with that set of tunes that you just played, so where where would they take you? What 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 do you? What, where did that bring you? Well, they, 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 it would bring me back to the days that uh, we would, to uh, Joe Ryan and myself would would take. Uh, I would me often go in to play with Joe 
when he was playing in Donahue's uh, in Marion Row there in, in Dublin, a famous one of the famous bars of the uh, the 60s. And uh, the Dubliners all started there and other people. And we, uh, th- 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 that, would, th- th- that would be a memory yeah. right there of, of playing with him. And Joe and myself were... Uh, the, the duet of the Castle Cayley band, we were known as the Castle uh, Duet Number Two. Uh, Castle Duet Number One was my brother Sean with uh, Mick O'Connor, the leader of the band, and uh, so we we uh, uh, Joe and myself would would uh, get up on stage to play, and so sometimes that would be uh, the jig, or we'd practice that jig to just to get back to playing together. Uh, so. All the reasons are behind playing, but I uh, I I fully believe that uh, if you're playing a tune, as I say, as I mentioned earlier, if you just learned it off a CD, you're you're just going to end up just playing that playing. tune. But if you're playing that tune for any one of those three reasons I gave you, um, you're playing it with more mm-hmm. purpose. And you're playing it with more heart. It's such a lovely aspect of music. It is. I, I, f- I find it in particular, uh, having been, uh, uh, you know, I took a visit out of Ireland <laughs> 53 years ago and uh, it turned into a long stay over here. Uh, we, uh, they, weren't the, they weren't the original plans, but uh, uh, still, I feel it. I still have one foot in Ireland after all those years, and I. Uh, mm-hmm. Sorry, it's funny. That's what. That's the reason when when we set out with the with the project. The it's funny you brought up those three aspects that when myself and Dom first started talking about this podcast, it was about trying to talk about trying to capture those moments because each and each each tune does bring you somewhere. It. it it's a little time capsule. It, it transports you to a place and a person and a, a feeling. There's no other medium that can do that. And it's such it's such an incredible. I don't, I don't know. Like we keep on coming back to it as a time machine. You get to you get to travel to other places to other people because of the music. And it does keep you connected. Yeah. Oh, it's a pretty. It's a very powerful. Uh, and you know, even besides all that, I have, uh, I was. Uh, there's no real great uh, thanks to me for, for playing traditional Irish music. I mean, I I I fell right into it from the moment I was born. Uh, my mother uh, was was a, a fine fiddle player, and so was my father. And uh, James, can you tell us a bit about that then? Um, what were your early exposures to music then? Well, uh, I was born in uh, in 1948, and it was pretty much pretty soon after uh, the war. Uh, and Dublin, I was born in Dublin, in a place called Drimna, is a suburb of of the city, about three miles out from the centre of the city. But uh, it was still at the top of our road was still. Uh, the green fields would start. Right. Yeah. So we were right on the edge of of uh, Dublin and Southwest Dublin, and um, that was the case till I was mid uh, uh, t- t- mid teenage, uh, where you know if you go if you went for a walk with the dog, 
all you had to do was walk up the top of the road and you were off into green fields and you'd go off up through the, the Dublin hills and uh, people used to refer to them as the Dublin mountains <laughs> but uh, I'm afraid they were far from mountains uh, we'd 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 uh, we'd go up the Dublin hills on hikes and all that and it was uh, it was a pretty uh, um, joyful uh, upbringing although uh, our parents unfortunately I said uh, it was shortly after the war and uh, things were tough and uh, my father uh, had met my mother in in Dublin my mother came from a place called Carul Newtown Cashel. County Longford mm-hmm. and uh, she she came to Dublin and then my father came to Dublin when he was 18 years of age and he had other brothers uh, that had come before him. One was a policeman one was a bus driver one was uh, a bus conductor Right. and uh, they all had these uniforms of sorts and uh, my father came and he got a job at 18 with a uh, with a uh, um, Clondalkin paper mills it was known as and he it was a shift job it was on he was on shift shift work and he started his shift work uh, every week was a different shift 8 to 4 4 to 8 and 12 to 8 and uh, so every every week He'd have to change his sleeping pattern again. He used to. I used to hear him uh, wish for uh, rain when he was on the uh, when he was coming in from the twelve to eight. Whereas uh, he would get uh, he would get sleep if it was a rainy day, and uh, it, otherwise the, our neighbours, the ladies, on in particular on a Monday, would be out there hanging the washing, and there'd be great gabbing going on and. Uh, very, he used to find it very, uh, very hard to sleep. So, um, but uh, the the two of them met uh, in 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 Dublin, then, and uh, unfortunately, my father lived uh, to be uh, he he died at the age of sixty. Uh, the year he was to retire, and he he i always thought he got a, a terrible short uh, he got the short end of the stick altogether after he had they had put a a plaque on the clock in in the mill and he worked from 18 to 60 in the mill every week as i said a different shift and he went out that road at midnight on his bicycle sometimes letting the air out of the the tires a bit so as he'd get more grip on the icy roads and it was the main Dublin to Limerick road and the cars would be taken whipping by his his overcoat as he cycled out the dark road to Clondalkin it was about four miles out the road from us and um, I always uh, thought uh, after all his hard work and he got two weeks the first two weeks of August off for his holidays and he died. Uh, he died uh, on the the year he was to uh, he was to retire. So he never got a he never got a, a, a day off. And we were as hard and all as they got it. We never knew. We always thought we were very well off. And uh, there was always plenty. Uh, we never wanted for anything. And um, we had uh, 
we had we had a, a three bedroom house in Dremna and uh, unfortunately uh, looking back now I say unfortunately because uh, we had borders to, to make ends meet and uh, two barmen from the local uh, uh, several bars that were in the area and uh, one of them in particular uh, was there through my, my birth and all the way through uh, till I was uh, about 15 or 16 years of age. He was uh, a Roscommon man and he was he, Luke, Luke Brennan was his name. And uh, he, he, was a, he was a permanent fixture in our house. And another gentleman, also another barman, whereas the only time that my father and my mother and Sean and myself would be able to sit down at the fireplace and play tunes together was on the weekend, particularly on a Sunday, when the, the, the two barmen had gone home for the weekend. And uh, other than that, my mother ran that house like a, a hotel, a different menu every day for the for the porters, and she washed for them, and she scrubbed for them, and uh, uh, everyone worked very, very hard. So, James, was it just yourself and your brother, Sean? Just Sean and I, yeah. And of course, Sean, for the listener's sake, uh, Sean is my better known uh, famous uh, brother because of his involvement with the, the chieftains the chieftains yeah from the early days and uh, he he joined them uh, for their uh, third album and then all the way through then for all the rest of the years as uh, he was uh, invite he was a, a member at that time the, the time he joined them he was a member of uh, Kiltori Coolan with uh, Sean O'Reilly what was Kiltory Kieran? Yeah, well, well, th- that was a group put together. Uh, that was the first group that was put together uh, early and during the folk revival in Ireland by Sean O'Reilly. Mm-hmm. And Sean uh, uh, kind of was the first to orchestrate folk music in that in that Irish folk music, at least Irish Irish traditional music. Uh, where he would have uh, instruments dropping out and dr- coming back in and mm-hmm. uh, making it uh, more interesting, basically for the person outside of the really the the strict tradition to to appeal to them to bring to to bring them in. Yeah, and uh, he he was very successful at doing that. Uh, where uh, and then of course involved and the chieftains grew out of that right that's exactly it but the chieftains also uh, grew out of uh, the 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 Castle Cayley band that we formed in 60 uh, we formed this band in 63 uh, 62-63 so before we chat a bit more about that James um, what about your mum and dad Um, where was their music coming from and were they your main influences, like your main teachers? Well, they, we were, they were the ones to introduce us to the music, of course. And 
my as I say, my mother's uh, playing. My mother was a very good fiddle player, but it, it kind of um, she fell into bad practice over uh, because of uh, you know having to be in the kitchen all day long and uh, waiting for staggered uh, times for the the, boy, the two boarders coming home for their lunch and stuff, yep. and then later for their tea. So her uh, her fiddle was c- kind of collecting dust a bit, whereas my father would come in from the, from the mill in particular when he'd get home at the four o'clock uh, time, and uh, it wouldn't be long before you'd hear him playing away inside in the front room with the door closed and he going through reels and jigs uh, on his own in there, and right. um, but with they they were uh, they they were very. Both families, my on my father's side, he as I say, he was from Lavalla, Balnacali, County Clare, mm-hmm. and uh, on his side, he had his brothers were uh, budding accordion players, but they 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 didn't take it too seriously. Uh, he had a sister. Uh, we refer to her as Baby. She was one of uh, uh, of. She was the only sister among five brothers, and they referred to her as Baby, and uh, so she was my aunt Baby, and she was a lovely concertina player, and she also played uh, the accordion. Right. Uh, her music would be under appeal mainly for when uh, somebody needed music for a set, if you wanted to dance a set, uh, Baby would be uh, more than willing to play for it, and uh, they lived in this little cottage. Uh, a two-bedroom cottage uh, back about f- three miles outside the village of Balnacali. And uh, the picture of the... The, pi- the postcard picture of a cottage where you would have uh, the uh, the lovely uh, open fire with the uh, the crooks and the pots and the, everything hanging on that crane. And uh, also uh, uh, the, the Snow White... Uh, Walls and the the lovely uh, care that was given to the smoke mark on the back of the fire would be well painted uh, down with the white with the whitewash. Um, the flagstones on the floor where the f- was the floor, and they were particularly uh, picked for for the set dancing. Large flagstones, and uh, the one in front of the fire was particularly large. And uh, it could accommodate uh, eight people when they'd go to dance this set. And in the, with uh, I I often said to my two sons here in America how lucky I was to be born at that time, because even though I was born in Dublin, with electricity and running water and everything else, all the facilities, uh, when we'd go down the country to my mother's uh, part of the world and then especially down to uh, County Clare uh, on my father's holidays. As I said, he went down the first two weeks of August. Um, we were introduced to a time that uh, existed before the rural elect- electrification scheme came in, uh, before uh, running water. They had their own well. You'd go to the well and and get your buckets of of water and walk back with the two bu- bucket in each arm, and um, uh, the outhouse was 
common uh, common use. Uh, and for us as kids to leave the uh, what was taken for granted in Dublin and witness all this and the the oil lamps uh, in the in the uh, the the oil lamp would be uh, fired up uh, as it was start it started to get dark, and we'd all sit around waiting for. Uh, the uh, the news at ten o'clock, uh, because uh, the battery uh, the the radio was run on a dry battery, and uh, that was topped up every week or so. Uh, he'd put the battery. My uncle would put the battery on the handlebars of the bike, and go off into the village and exchange it for another one that was charged. And uh, in the meantime, he that was uh, service was supplied by the. Uh, one of the three pubs in the village, and it enabled him to top up on his uh, glass of Guinness or two, and he'd return on his bike and uh, with the battery, and of course it was only put on for special occasions. It was only put on for to, to listen to the news for 15 minutes uh, at night, and then on a Saturday night they went all out for the half-hour programme of Cayley House which started at 10.30 on a Saturday night and the radio was turned off at 11 o'clock again and not turned on till the news the following day. Um, so James, do, do you think we could just pause there for another tune and then we can talk a bit more about your own musical development? Well, uh, would you mind if I played something a little subdued? It's it's um, it's a tune, seeing as we're talking about uh, this beautiful part of uh, Ireland that I witnessed back in those days it was called La Valle I, I composed a tune uh, called La Valle and I composed it's a, a jig march and uh, it's in memory of the, the that quiet part of the world that uh, when I'd go to the end of the little street that was outside the house in the evening time you could hear the the rustle of the the cart wheels of 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 uh, of a horse and cart in the distance, or and uh, maybe uh, the farmer shouting at the uh, the cattle to get back in line to go through a gap as he was bringing them in for milking, and other than that, they were the only sounds in the whole world that you could hear in that part of the world back in those days. And uh, it struck me to uh, compose a tune about it. One day I was landing at Shannon and we were coming through the clouds and all of a sudden I was put in memory of the song that Johnny Cash uh, wrote many years ago, 40 Shades of Green. And uh, I used to take, uh, when Americans would say to me after my first visit, they'd say, it's very green, Ireland is so green. I'd say to them, it's no it's green in Central Park too. It's green. <laughs> Everything is green, like, you know. And um, it was when we, this particular morning, landing at Shannon, it's around six o'clock in the morning, and just coming out of the clouds, and it was coming in over that part of the world where La Valle is. It was right under the clouds. And uh, it struck me that all the shady greens, the, the, the heathery greens and uh, the blue greens and all the beauty of, of that country. And I, I came to the estimate that, yes, this country is definitely worth fighting for.
So I call this tune Nevada, and it's a, a jig march. for you thank you so much you painted such a fantastic picture before we got to that that tune too so really it kind of took you took you to a place and what, what i think what you said before just before the tune about flying into ireland i, I know exactly that feeling and not just that feeling but the that expression where people say oh it's so green it's so green yeah and you just you don't have any appreciation I don't. I don't know if it's because you're you're there and you're in it. But when you spend a bit of time away and you oh, go back, I remember it, one time yeah. I went back, and it had been fifty five days of it was a summer and it had fifty five days of rain, yeah. And then we got there and it was two weeks of sunshine. The place I can only like the only word I can describe it as it was it was heaving like there was laneways that I would have been down when I was a kid that I was going down and I didn't recognise because it was, they were just heaving. And I came back to Australia just thinking that. Ireland had revealed itself again to me. I remembered being back, like kind of back when you had mentioned going down the country. Like I remember my great um, uncle's house was very much like that. The whitewash wall with the big flagstones and, and the, the fireplace and no running water and electricity. And I got, I, when I was a very young man, I got to see that. But that element of Ireland really grabbed me when I was home that time that I kind of, 
I felt like I really I missed out on something. Yeah. And that's probably something. So that that happened to you when you flew in. Well, it, it uh, did. Out of Shannon and, that time. And it, it also made me uh, wonder for, you see, when, when I came to America, I, I came here for the fun. I had been here mm. for three weeks uh, on a tour uh, but I'll I'll tell you that whole story. I I really I, I really only came here to. Uh, I had such a good time during the three weeks in New York uh, uh, that I I came back with a vengeance to pay to to paint New York a few different colours. And I set out. Well, I set out to do that, and I certainly did. I painted them every colour in the rainbow, and. Uh, Got into all sorts of trouble doing it as when, well. When but, was uh, that, James? That was in that was in sixty eight. I came back for good. Well, I didn't know I was coming back for good. I I accepted a job uh, playing. Uh, I was offered this uh, job to play in a place called the John Barleycorn in uh, in New York, and uh, I, my partner at the time was uh, Michael Jesse Owens. Uh, uh, he was a singer and guitar player, so we were we were a, a handy duet. And uh, what we did was, and, and very carefree at that, only out for the fun. It didn't matter. Money wasn't uh, in our minds at all. We just uh, we just out for the crack, you know. And um, we um, we um, we we proceeded, as I said, just to enjoy ourselves. But uh, it's uh, it, it, I was uh, when I was coming back for. Uh, the second time uh, to uh, after after coming in originally uh, in '68, uh, after my first holiday, we'll say, uh, I started to wonder about it. All right, and uh, had I had I made the right decision? So, who invited you out? The John Barleycorn, uh, two gentlemen. Uh, uh, one, his name was Terry O'Neill. He was a Corkman, and uh, and. Uh, Jerry Toner was uh-huh. the, the other man's name. He was a Belfast man. They had been uh, they had been um, uh, waiters on the uh, the Queen Mary uh-huh. back in those days, and uh, obviously they they got off uh, with uh, they accumulated a bit of cash, and the help of this uh, big uh, businessman they they met between them here in New York, they decided to. Uh, Get into the bar business, and they uh, they ended up uh, at the height of it. They had seven bars going, right? And uh, one was the Abbey Tavern, one was the Green Derby, one was the the John Barleycorn, um, Kennedy's, um, Desi Crofton was another partner of theirs, and, and uh, he was a Galway man. And right. um, they. Um, so what was the John Barleycorn like? Can you paint a picture for me if? If you got in there as a as a punter, right, and you're, you you've never seen the place before, John, John Barleycorn, yeah, it, it was a it, it was a small uh, bar downstairs. You take steps down to it off the the main uh, sidewalk. Mm-hmm. It was next to a very famous restaurant at the time. It was called the, the famous restaurant was called uh, the Pen and Pencil, mm-hmm. and uh, that was well known as a steakhouse. And uh, Italian restaurant, and um, so the John, John Barleycorn was next to it, and um, uh, other people that played in the Barleycorn uh, were you had the famous uh, Charlie McGee, 
was his name. Uh, Charlie would be would have been famous mainly for singing uh, uh, songs on the Walton program. It was a it was a commercial program on uh, RTE for years and years and years on a Saturday afternoon, mm-hmm. and. Uh, uh, he was always introduced by the, the the voice on the program as Charlie McGee and his gay guitar. So uh, uh, so Charlie was from Donegal, and uh, he specifically uh, was known for uh, his singing of the homes of Donegal. Uh, his partner, uh, they actually started the music there, but they it was uh, more in the style of. Um, uh, how would I say, Shillelagh and Shamrock uh, uh, style. Uh, so that would be more the popular ballads, right? I mean, what were people singing at that time? Yeah, yeah. Irish eyes are smiling and uh, uh, all that, and uh, which was a shock to me when I when I came over. I mean, I said, Jesus, you know, I I would have uh, my radio in Dublin. I would nearly have the on-off switch broken <laughs> from turning it off when that stuff had come on, like you know. And uh, I it was uh, that was totally uh, the the enemy to me. That type of stuff. I was painting the wrong image of uh, Ireland altogether, as far as I was concerned. Right. right. But uh, Paddy Noonan uh, played with him. Then Paddy was a, a piano accordion player. And Paddy recently died, I'm sorry to say. And uh, Paddy also was responsible later on for Regal Records. Yeah. He also uh, he also had a hand in uh, the formation of uh, Kells Records. Right. Which actually, through the help of, I can't think of the, the chap's name now, they, uh, they actually brought out some uh, good uh, traditional music albums. Uh-huh. And uh, uh, so, uh, uh, but 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 that that, that was I I, I kind of jumped the the, the 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 gun a bit because I never told you about you asked me earlier about uh, how did the the music the interest in the music form in back in in a suburb of of Dublin where really to tell you the truth. There was no, there was no traditional music anywhere around Dublin in those days. Uh, there was music, all the music, all the traditional music that was played in Dublin and any other uh, town that happened to have been a garrison town, where the British would have had uh, uh, depots, uh, army barracks, and the likes. Uh, all that music, there was somebody would say at uh, at times, and some people would laugh when they'd say, "We played music. We played traditional music when it was dangerous to play it." Well, actually, there's nothing funny about that because it was dangerous to play it, and you'd be dragged out, and you'd be you'd be to be a rifle put under your chin uh, as to uh, what were your motives uh, of of this. You see. If you want to take a country down, which the British realised uh, many for many many years ago, and that was to hit the country, Ireland, in its culture pocket. You hit them with their you hit you just try to destroy their language. 
you try to destroy their their writers their prose their 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 their, their, uh, uh, their uh, anything to do with the culture and especially uh, to do with uh, their music if you can keep that down well then you've broken their back and um, uh, so the music in Dublin when uh, we we never we never let on to our our schoolmates uh, that we played Irish music, because uh, the little bit of it they knew about in let it be going to school and the liberties where we went, we went to school and the Christian Brothers all the way in from Dublin, uh, all the way in from Drimna to Dublin every day on a bus, and uh, it was rather uh, the uh, it was all during the um, the, uh, the the rock and roll. Uh, time where Tommy Steele and uh, Tommy, Tommy Steele, yeah. Elvis Presley, and uh, all that was starting. And uh, the kids going to my school, uh, uh, like they, they'd say, if you saw a cat with uh, <laughs> with a tail, he was a visitor, you know. He, uh, he, he, he was, uh, it was the, the boys all had uh. Uh, leather belts and jeans and uh, studs in their belts and uh, empty uh, knife cases, you know, attached. Whereas my mother sent the two long, lanky uh, kids, blonde-haired kids with their short ankle socks and their short pants uh, cut out of firemen's and policemen's pants uh, into school, into the Christian brothers. And they absolutely devoured us. I mean, they, and especially when they found out we played this terrible diddly diddly stuff. Uh, what do you mean they devoured you, James? What, what do you mean by they, that? You get beaten up. You get you get set on. Right. And you were you were always the the target. So you were walking around with a target on your back. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And at the end of the day, uh, word would have been passed around the classroom uh, by some of the good boys. That uh, Keane was have was fighting somebody over at St Patrick's Cathedral after school, <laughs> and uh, you'd no other option but to show up, yeah. uh, or else you better not show up for school the following day. And uh, so, therefore, once again, I go back to Johnny Cash, and I recall a song that he made famous, and it was called uh, "A Boy Named Sue." And uh, so that's who we were. We were we were the boys named Sue, being sent in to the kill, in for the kill, every day into Francis Street's Christian Brothers School and the Liberties in Dublin. And let me tell you, you better be a good fit young fellow to come out of it. And uh, so I, I guess it, it toughened us up a bit. Uh, we stuck it out all the years. When did you then, James? Um when did you start playing in the city? Well, starting to play in the first place was was a, a bit of a test, because, uh, as I said, uh, the, uh, there was a favour towards uh, fiddle playing in our house, my mother and father, and then of course Sean showed an interest when, in it when he was six, mm-hmm. and they sent him for uh, classical uh, lessons, so. Which benefited him, even though he still was stuck with the traditional as well. Mm-hmm. 
uh, he has uh, it, improved his bow hand, we'll say, for example, his his sta- his uh, stature when he's you know when he was playing how he, the way he held himself, the way he held the fiddle when he was playing. Uh, uh, so I was uh, I was the rebel at home. I was the <laughs> devil, the the one that caused the the the, the trouble. Right, and um, they they were watching for me at, at every minute. And my uncle, one of my uncles, as I said, play used to make an effort on the accordion. Right. And obviously, uh, they got fed up with him. He was a policeman in Dublin, and Store Street in Dublin was the name of the police station. Uh-huh. And uh, it was a barracks. And I guess they got fed up with him taking out the accordion from time to time to make an effort to play when um, when he... Um, he, he, they asked him to put it away. So what he did was, he he'd always come out to our house in Drimna for his Sunday dinner, and he he brought out the accordion, and after his Sunday dinner, he'd go into the front room, and uh, he'd take out the accordion from underneath the sofa, and he'd settle into a few tunes that he played, and when he was finished, he'd pack away the little honer back under the, the sofa again and that was it till he'd he'd returned the following Sunday. So uh, the curiosity got to me and uh, I uh, as soon as he'd be on the bus heading heading back into Dublin, I'd be making my way back into the front room and I'd I'd search out the, the, the accordion under the sofa <laughs> and I'd pull it out wow. and I'd I'd take particular notice of Decide he put it in on, and exactly how he had put, how he had left it after him, Aye. and uh, I'd I start to push and pull and mm-hmm. look around the, the keyboard and try to bring out a tune here and there, uh, all with one finger. So I had uh, I had oodles and oodles of tunes in my in my head. As a matter of fact, Sean and I, we had a friend that had a, we never had a, a car in the family in Dublin. But we had a friend, a, co- a, a second cousin, that uh, because uh, there was music in the family, it was a good ticket for him also, besides being a nice guy and doing it, it was a good ticket for him to pick us up for a, a flak yule and drive us to the flak yule. And wherever we'd get in with the music, he was obviously included as well. So it worked both ways. And when the car would pull up, pull out from the sidewalk outside our house, Sean and I in the back seat would immediately start lilting uh, wheels and jigs. Yeah. And we'd, as soon as I'd finish, Sean would pick up at another reel. And then I'd pick up at another reel and a different reel and a different reel. And wherever we were going, as we'd pull up at that at that uh, at that uh, address, we'd still be lilting reels and jigs, without ever having repeated ourselves, and uh, it would have almost turned into a bit of a competition along the way, because uh, one outdoing the other, uh, when we st- they start getting scarce, how to think of another one, and. Um, so uh, when I when it came turn for me to figure out what the accordion was all about, I uh, I was using one finger, and I started to uh, b- bring out a couple of jigs and 
uh, that was fine. And I, I eventually got the jig up to speed with one finger. And uh, it was pretty marvelous how I was doing it, uh, except uh, my father uh, broke uh, the bad news to me one day. And he said, uh, James, you know, he says, uh, if you're going to keep at that uh, accordion, uh, you're going to have to. You're going to need to f use four fingers. So uh, that that was another puzzlement again, and I set about working that, that that particular problem out, and I did. And it was around that time that uh, he uh, he decided that I was making headway with the accordion, and that uh, hey maybe it's time to. Uh, actually buy him a real accordion, like a Palo Soprani mm -hmm. accordion, a red accordion. And uh, uh, we, uh, we, it was discussed, of course, my mother and myself had to, because they were expensive at the time, they were like four weeks wages, what yeah. he was getting at the mill. And uh, it had to be, uh, this had to be worked out. And uh, it was uh, the day, the big mark was put on the calendar to go into Pickett's music store in Grafton Street uh, on that particular Saturday and to buy a C-sharp D Palo Soprani uh, because that's what I had been playing with the one with the one finger and then eventually four. So uh, we went into Pickett's that particular Saturday, my father and myself, and uh, they only had one, one accordion on the shelf. And of course, I, uh, I focused on it right away and uh, the, the the man behind the counter explained that it wasn't a uh, a C sharp D accordion; it was actually a B C accordion. And the difference being that on the C sharp D, to get the same note on uh, on this uh, on the C sharp D, when you'd pull to get a note, to get the same sh same note on a on a B C, you'd have to push. So. It was inside out uh, to play the BC. You'd have to, you, you, your, your mind would be twisted mm -hmm. almost, uh, or, or you'd end up breaking several fingers trying to play. And uh, I uh, I wouldn't, my father said, well, then no, it's obviously not the right accordion for him. We're not, we won't get it. And uh, I, I complained and I made my stand and I ended up bringing the accordion the BC accordion back home with this, back out to Drimna that that Saturday afternoon, and all excited about going into the Pipers Club to play that night, because I was getting, I had been getting little guest uh, spots every Saturday night to play a couple of tunes on John Keenan's uh, C sharp D accordion, and uh, it was going down very well. Because here I am with my own BC accordion, and it's time for me to take my spot at the Pipers Club. And I got the call from Jim Nolan to play, to start with the piano. And the piano gave me two taps and I took off on one of the tunes. And of course, I found myself playing in a totally different key to the piano. And uh, Jesus, I had to, uh, I was mortified and I had to put the, uh, the accordion back in its case <laughs> yeah. and uh, lick, lick, my, lick my wounds and uh, pack it in and go home and start learning uh, put everything into reverse instead of returning to the, the accordion which I could have done I decided to hold on to it and right. relearn it right. and uh, right. 
that fight. It, it, it was possibly all due to uh, the influence. I'd say I was influenced by one visit from a very famous accordion player when uh, Sean and myself were, I was, I guess, uh, I was six and Sean, Sean would have been seven, seven, seven and a half. Uh, we were asleep upstairs in the, in the bedroom in, in Drimna and uh, my mother came up uh, that night and she picked each of us, she picked Sean up on one arm and I in the other and brought us downstairs to the fireplace. There was a, a raging fire going on in the fireplace and sitting at the fireplace was the one and only Joe Cooley who was a uh, a a friend of my dear uncle Peter who was a, a lovely piper and played with uh, during his time with the Leo Rousham quartet on uh, early re- radio and uh, broadcasts back in the er- the early 30s but he 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 was a friend of Cooley's and he brought him back out to the house one night for a few tunes and uh, my mother thought it was worth our while to wake us and to bring us down to the fireplace and she uh, and I can uh, even though I was only six at the time anything to do with the music is as clear to me today as it was back then and I remember clearly uh, Joe uh, getting into several tunes and playing away and um, believe it or not uh, uh, I'll jump ahead to uh, being 19, uh, 19 years of age, in uh, I was playing a gig in Los Angeles, and uh, I got wind of uh, where Cooley lived in uh, San Francisco. So, I, on my day off, the Monday, I, I guess it would have been, I jumped. Uh, uh, an air shuttle from uh, from Los Angeles to San Francisco and I got a taxi to the address of Joe Cooley with my accordion and at 2 o'clock in the day I knocked on his door on the second floor of his apartment building and he opened the door with the, tip, with the usual cigarette in his mouth and uh, wondered who this young skip was standing looking at him with holding an accordion case and I introduced him as the nephew of Peter Handley and the grandson of uh, my uh, grandmother who he, he had often played at the Rand Dancers in my mother's house back in uh, in Longford and uh, of course right away there was a Cade Mill vulture for me and he opened the door and we I went in and uh, after uh, uh, just a, a brief chat, we found ourselves with the two accordions out. And we were playing away and a few uh, brews were introduced and we took care of them too. And he decided we, we'd call his good friend uh, Kevin Keegan, another Galway man as, uh, and a great accordion player. And Kevin showed up shortly after, and the three of us 
played for the night. Which, uh, there was a tape recorder going too, but God knows whatever happened. Oh, it. Wow. Uh, we, we, we lost it. But I, uh, his wife came home from work that evening and she was, of course, surprised to see the festive uh, atmosphere that was going on in her living room. And uh, she uh, she obliged us by taking a couple of pictures. Oh, and I, I have put that one of those pictures up on Facebook quite a few times. Uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful picture. And, uh, you know, the more sometimes the more you look at a picture, the more you get out of it. And I had it blown up into a, a it was a black and white. Uh, it was originally a Polaroid picture, but it was blown up, and when it was blown up, it come out uh, black and white. And I had a, it was an eight by ten, and I had a copy of it stuck on the side of my refrigerator. And in the mornings before going leaving the house, I'd be eating the cereal there, and I'd be staring at the picture. And one thing I noticed was that in the background of the picture was a photo of Joe's wedding day he and his wife in this picture and uh, the uh, wasn't it gas that one evening I was taken to Long Island Railroad out of uh, New York uh, Penn Station coming out here uh, to to Queens uh, and uh, a man sat down on the third seat, across, uh, out on my own, on the seat. There were three. They used to gauge him three seats uh, in each, in each length, and uh, I was at the window. And uh, this man sat down on the outside. Who else was it except the the great Johnny Cronin, the fiddle, the great Kerry fiddle player? And I had met Johnny a few times in that same particular train. He'd be coming home from work as well, and he. Uh, He'd usually open up his his speak by saying, "And did you know Joe Cooley?" You see, so every evening, and Jesus, I was I'd give him the same answer uh, every time, and gee, he'd he'd go on about uh, stories about himself and Cooley, you see, in Chicago back in those days, and and Seamus Cooley would have been around in those days also. So this particular evening, he. He he sat down beside me, and there was a couple of brews going on again, and he um, he shouted out at me. Uh, uh, I was only one seat away from him, but he was. Uh, whenever Johnny started to talk on the train, the whole train would go quiet, <laughs> because they heard they'd never heard an accent like this in their lives, yeah. and they, they 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 couldn't help but hear him. But they wanted to hear him properly, so they, everyone would shut up and listen. So he started with it again. And did you know Joe Cooley? And um, what happened was the lady that was sitting on front of us, a total stranger to us, turned around after after Johnny had gone on for a while. And she said, uh, I, uh, hello, she said, I couldn't help but overhear what you were saying. You mentioned Joe Cooley from the accordion player from Galway. Well, she says, I wanted to let you know, she said, that I was the bridesmaid for Joe Cooley and his wife that the day they got married. Well, 
I mean, here we are rolling along in the Long Island Railroad going out the, uh, going out the island. And uh, the Johnny, Johnny was, Johnny freaked yeah. out. He totally yeah. freaked out. And he jumped up out of his seat and he went up and he passed her and he turned around right away and he faced her and he leaned down to her and he looked at her and he says, and by Jesus, he says, you're a fine looking woman too. <laughs> <laughs> and the whole train erupted yeah. with, 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 laughed, with laughter. And um, uh, just another man. We so missed. she's then, we missed Johnny. Too. She's in the photograph you have there. Wasn't that a great one? Uh, no, she wasn't in it. Right. But I had only noticed to pay attention uh, after having the photograph for a couple of years. Yeah. That that was their wedding picture, on the on the on the china cabinet behind them, you know, behind yeah. us in the picture. So James, would and little did I know there was ever going to be a connection made, uh, w- with that picture again, like ever. Yeah. And and it took a, a trip on the Long Island Railroad to. For, James, to do you think up. we could have a um another tune or a set of tunes? And I'd love to ask you, I'd, either either of these two would be amazing. Something. That would remind you, because we were speaking earlier on about how tunes remind you of certain things uh, and people and places. Maybe either a tune that reminds you of that first accordion that you got or something something from your time with, with Joe. Well, definitely I'll play, I'll, I'll play um, uh, tunes that after getting the accordion, I started to play with my father. And okay. uh, the first one, is called uh, Tom Ward's Downfall. Uh, it was a particular favourite of his. The third reel is called Dylan's Fancy, which was also a very uh, fine favourite of his also. And uh, so that's bringing my, my father back for for a little visit here. And the, the, the middle tune is a tune called Farewell to Erin. And... Uh, I I learned that uh, uh, from uh, the great Paddy O'Brien, just hearing him play it uh, one night in the Mansion House in Dublin, where he was playing with a band that he used to lead uh, for the Cayleys called the Lockdown and Cayley Band. And um, so uh, I'll play these these uh, three reels for you. They were uh, the first and the, and the third one, as I say, definitely... Uh, uh, Brings my father uh, back for a trip. Okay. okay. Thank you, James. Yes. Thank <laughs> you. 
James, that was great. Thank you. Um, you mentioned when we spoke on the phone a while back about the McPeak family out of Belfast, um, who some listeners probably know about. They're a really influential family in the 50s and the 60s and probably into the 70s, actually. Um, uh, how did you first come across them? Well, uh, I, was, uh, I had heard him on the radio, um, Kieran McMahona, often had them uh, focused on them uh, for a whole program uh, back in the early 60s. That would be um, on Athlone? Uh, uh, no, uh, actually, it would have been on Radio Wern on his Kiltatira program when he, yeah, and uh, the job of journey work. And um, he, um, he, he started, they, they happened to play uh, as a family, and I think... It was at one of the flag holes. It could have been Ennis in 1956. It could have been on that uh, main concert uh, that they, they played. And it w- what was unusual about them was that they, they had five sets of, of uh, pipes in the family. And P- uh, Francie, old Francie McPeak, he was. He seemed perpetually old because uh, I I didn't know about him till I guess he was about ninety anyway, and uh, he was born old. He was born old. Yeah, <laughs> he, he he was he was the patriarch, and um, you know, and then then he had a, a son. He was also Francie, I understand, and he was he was another piper. Um, in the family, in the family show, they had two harps. 
and they had um, a whistle player and as I say five, there were five sets of pipes the, f- the, the pipes uh, illin pipes they were, they were pitched uh, they were flat sets of pipes they were pitched in C which made it very adaptable to sing with but they sang and and uh, and songs that they they were actually responsible for uh, some composing some of them and 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 reviving some of them that would have been lost and it was a very appealing sound with their uh, their their the, the the Belfast accent was coming true as well as the beautiful sound of the flat sets of pipes and and the harp so uh, the folk revival uh, had just begun and uh, there was a lady that was behind it a big force behind that in Dublin at the time and her name was Peggy Jordan and uh, uh, she was uh, putting up uh, like uh, we knew Barney in those days. Barney didn't even have a beard. Barney McKenna, and uh, we were we'd often uh, have Barney at, at sessions and things. But it, it, she was she was uh, enlightening people to uh, inviting people into folk clubs and getting getting the whole thing started. So she played a huge part. But one day. She landed at our front door and she came in. Uh, my mother invited her in and uh, the two of them ended up sitting at the uh, kitchen table having a chat. And the purpose of her visit was to ask my mother's permission for Sean and I to play for five nights of one week at the Grafton Cinema in Dublin. Uh, the show would be called Midnight at the Grafton. So here we were, two little boys uh, still going to Francis Street School and um, how how the hell would this work? Because, uh, you know, we were way underage to be uh, travelling around Dublin at night or anything like that. And uh, my mother objected right away. She says, under no circumstances uh, will I let them do that. So uh, she kind of uh, found her soft side and uh, talked to her about it. And uh, it, it came to pass. So every, every evening at, uh, we would come home from school, do our homework and go right to bed. My mother would call us around 10 o'clock or so and there was a bus stop right outside our front door. Um, My mother would go out and wait for the last bus that would be going into the city for the night, the very last one. And uh, she'd stop the bus and she'd uh, talk to the conductor, to the bus conductor. And she'd say, be sure and let these two boys out at the end of Cape uh, on Dame Street at the end of Grafton Street and they'll be fine then make sure they can cross the street and they'll be they'll be okay they know where they're going and uh, we'd get on the bus and take off into the, we'd be the only ones on the bus and we'd we'd go off into the city jump off the bus at uh, outside Trinity College 
and go on up Grafton Street to the Grafton Cinema and uh, get ready to play. And we'd open for the McPeak family uh, with uh, a few tunes. We'd probably played the likes of Oh, Carlin's Concerto or, you know, a set of reels, a set of jigs, and uh, that'd be it. And then we'd take our seat on the front row and wait for it to open the second half. The, uh, the McPeaks would come on then and they'd do their, do their, they'd do their thing. So um, wasn't it fantastic that later in the week um, there were two other guests added to the, to the list and who were they except uh, Pete Seeger and Ewan McCall. And the reason that Pete Seeger was there was, well, he was a, fr- he was a friend of the McPeaks anyway, but the main reason he was able to be there was that he was doing a tour of Europe uh, after being taken off the blacklist here in America that McCarthy was uh, was responsible for putting them on back in the uh, back in those days, and uh, he he became the foc- there fo- the focus of that, and he suffered terribly for it. Uh, but he he was such a uh, Pete Seeger was the king of all kings of folk music. He was he was just. But Ewan McCall would have been uh, I- I married to Pete's sis- sister Peggy Seeger. You see. And uh, so he was there too. So it was funny, here we were around 11 years of age or so. And uh, even though we weren't tall enough quite quite then to rub shoulders, but we were rubbing shoulders with uh, with these great heroes, uh, already heroes of uh, traditional, of uh, folk music, international folk music. So uh, that was certainly uh, uh, happening. Uh, and it, it, it yeah. must have been hopping. Oh, it was. But the, oh, yes. The other, the other clause in my mother's demand uh, for letting us, I should have cleared her of anyone that's listening, saying, "Wasn't she a terrible woman?" Uh, <laughs> she insisted that every night we be returned by uh, Ryan's taxi uh, out to Drimna every night. So, besides getting a, a chance to stay up late, uh, we were having a ride every night in a in a beautiful Mercedes taxi going back out to Trimna. James, what, what was the atmosphere between yourself and Sean when this was happening? Ah, sure, we were, we, we didn't, we weren't taking anything that serious. Uh, we, we, it was all just uh, advancement. It was just growing up, you know? And yeah. um, we were back to school in the morning and we, once again, we kept our mouths shut about uh, playing and playing uh, the diddly diddly like you know we didn't we didn't we didn't brag about anything like that we couldn't there was nobody to brag yeah. to yeah so James when was the point where you realised you were able to maybe make a few quid at this and you started gigging regularly well th- that happened uh, I, uh, I I I really Took uh, took notice of that when it was when it was available, and uh, I got myself uh, an accompanist. Uh, Joey Walsh was his name, and Joey was a baron player, uh, al- uh, along with being one of the greatest characters uh, in Dublin at the time that ever lived. <laughs> uh, 
and uh, my mother was absolutely shocked that um, I would take up with this character Why? because he was totally nuts. He was nuts. <laughs> he was a drinker. He was um, he was uh, more than fond of the girls, and uh, he he was uh, as a fellow says, he was up to no good. Yeah, you know. And uh, there was a lot of things I could learn from him. Uh, uh, so uh, uh, I was going to uh, be diving in the deep end, no doubt. So he was your accompanist then? So it was just a box and a baron. So uh, the accordion and the baron. And you mentioned you mentioned uh, Barney McKenna there, um, yeah. whose name I sort of know by repute. Who were the other players who were knocking about that Dublin scene at the time? Can you paint a picture for me of that that whole sort of era? Well, um, Al O'Donnell was was a regular. We had a little group formed with Sean Mick and my Mick O'Connor and myself, and uh, Mary Jordan. Mary Jordan's uh, a wasn't the spoon daughter of Peggy's. That's right. That's who's that's her. That was her mother then that that organised the folk revival in Dublin. Do you know there's an Andy Irvin song? Andy was around in those days too. Um, Sorry. You probably know it, uh, O'Donoghue's, which is sort of this chronicle of his experience at that time. And he, he kind of lists all these characters. And one of them is Mary Jordan, who yeah. he sings is a whiz on the spoons. Mary ah, Jordan's a whiz on the spoons. Is that right? I wasn't aware of that, yeah. Yeah, well, she, she was part of the group uh, and Al O'Donnell. And uh, we, we, had, we had formed that group. And we called it uh, Kjoltori Blot Leah. Right. With the, the, the music, uh, the musicians, the Dublin right. musicians. Uh, and uh, we uh, didn't, didn't go very far, but we, we, we had a, a few television uh, appearances with it and all that. But uh, there was, it was short-lived. But, uh, Did you have a, a sense then around that time, James, of the attitudes more generally in Ireland around the music starting to change? Yes, they were changing, and uh, you know what I figured was a great help was the folk revival. I was very grateful to the folk revival for um, when they uh, when you'd see the ballad groups as they turned out. They ch- the whole thing changed from folk to ballad groups. It was known as, and um, when when ballad groups uh, would be singing a song, generally they take a break between the verses. And they'd have uh, the whistle player or the, the fiddle player or whatever play the melody. And all of a sudden, it was becoming cool to play a whistle. It was becoming cool to play a fiddle. And uh, and and then the box was getting in too. It was, uh, uh, it, it was all becoming... Hey, that's not that's not so square after all. Mm-hmm. We used to they my guys in Dublin used to refer to me as an L seven. Go on, what's that mean? An L seven, an L seven is a square. Uh, we put yeah. an L and a seven together. <laughs> of course. And uh, <laughs> so I was a, I was known as an L seven for many years, but uh, that soon that changed with the folk revival uh, because of the introduction of banjos and uh, uh, mandolins and uh, all of a sudden it just wasn't um, uh, somebody banging uh, uh, 
a two card trick on uh, 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 with a song. Now there's there are you getting plenty of work? Oh, um, uh, Jerry O'Grady, Jerry O'Grady. One night, you see what I the plan was. I would race off to the uh, to the embankment. We'll say uh, first gig at night, and then after opening for the Dubliners, we'll say in the embankment, I'd run out to the car and jump into it and head across town to the old Sheeling Hotel where I would join that show already in progress and play a, a few tunes and bail out of there and make it back to the Castle Inn in Christchurch Place and uh, open this, or close the first half of their show, move on again and be back up to the embankment to close the show and go on to Liberty Hall for a midnight show and go on then to three or four different folk clubs around Dublin. And um, Jerry O'Grady, who had a folk column in the uh, evening press in Dublin for years, uh, he'd often write about me. And he wrote this particular night that, uh, well, I see where James Keane is billed for 13 gigs tonight. <laughs> 13 gigs. Yeah. I was the terror of the, the, the roads, the streets, if, in my red Volkswagen. And if you got in my way, you were lucky, you'd have to jump. <laughs> and uh, 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 it was frightful. I, the amount of money I was making at the, in those days were, Lord rest my father, he was, his weekly wage would have been about eleven pounds at the mill, working in the mill, and because I was pl- jumping all these gigs every night, every night of the week, I was, and I was, I still had a, a a day job to keep my mother happy because she wanted me to have a pensionable job, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I wasn't letting that mm-hmm. go for her sake. Till I dropped the bomb one day, and uh, but uh, I I was uh, I was already when I got my Volkswagen I was already that was my third car. Yeah, I had Mini, I had Morris eleven hundreds, and I was I was making so much money. I was making over a hundred pounds a week. Yeah. When the uh, when the take home wage was eleven. How about a tune, James? Okay, I'll play a tune. Um, uh, do you know what I'll do? Uh, if you don't, it, 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 it's 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 a slow tune. It's an air, but and it, it, if you if you if you don't if you don't want me to, I'll play a couple of reels or so. But I was going to. No, you play. Do, do you mind? I'll. You play away. Right. Well, I'll I'll, I'll play this tune, that's called uh, the Lament for the Battle of Ockram. And I learned it from the MacPeaks. The Belfast MacPeaks. And I always said about the MacPeaks, you know, besides all the appreciation we had for them, I had another special appreciation for them. And that was where they came from and the trouble they saw in that neck of the woods. And the fact that they played our national instrument, which has been declared our national instrument, the helium pipes. And it's not a it's not an instrument 
that you can practice, especially with five sets of them, quietly. You can't, you can't just close the windows and hope the neighbors don't hear you. Thereby, yeah. thereby identifying yourself and your leanings, your political leanings. Mm. So I always had that extra bit of respect for the McPeak family and what they did for Irish music and for, for all this they composed and what they had to put up with in, in Belfast in those days. So they were brave people. And um, why, not, why not play this for Francie and everybody uh, that, uh, that had to live, live those hard times? So here's the tune, The Lament for the Battle of Ockram, as the McPeaks used to play it.
That's it. That's the lament for the Battle of Ockram. Learned, learned back from Francie and the boys, and uh, with much respect. I feel like we just scratched the surface. <laughs> yeah, we we really have just scratched the surface. There's so much more to James's story, which we'll be sharing with you in a an upcoming episode either next week or a couple of weeks down the line uh, what you've heard today is the first part of what we recorded with James and there's a lot more to come about his time in New York and about 
uh, going to Canada, dealing with cancer and lots of different ways that um, music has helped him throughout his life. So Yeah, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make sure I put in a link and I think 100% worth checking out is um, James's Irish Music Therapy YouTube um, channel, which is just an, an extra icing on the cake. So you've got someone who's done all of this work to then have this other... I think this other side of his his art and his music to build it into therapy is is, is great too. So there'll be a link to that as well as the the other things there, where to get his CDs, where to follow him, all that kind of thing. Yeah, and uh, we just want to say as well thanks to Kate O'Connell for doing that recording for us. Um, Kate's a freelancer based in Queens, and uh, she lives just around the corner from James as it happens, and she did a beautiful job of recording that. So thanks, very thanks, much, Kate. Kate. And uh, thanks to James and thanks to Teresa for their hospitality. I feel like I've been in their house. Uh, <laughs> yes, absolutely. Drinking tea. So. And thanks to Ken Fleming at the O'Flaherty Retreat for putting us in contact with James in the first place as well. Yeah. And so with that, um, the only thing left to say is thanks to all our patrons for going over to patreon.com forward slash Blarney Pilgrims and signing up to be a supporter of the podcast. And if you haven't done that and you've been meaning to, now is as good a time as any. That's uh, patreon.com forward slash Blarney Pilgrims. And your reward, as they say, will be great in heaven. And as always, hit subscribe, give us a review, and we look forward to catching you next week. See ya. Hi, my name is Jack. So please become a good subscriber to the podcast. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>